Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I don't have a guest on today's podcast. What I'd like to do with this podcast is introduce um, to you a new book that I've written. And I will talk a little bit about the book, go through the introduction, and then give you an overview of each of the 10 chapters so you can get an idea of what's in the book. The name of the book is Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. This podcast will be released on March 8th, and that's the same day that it launches on Amazon. And at Amazon, it will be in a Kindle version and also paperback version. Um, in the show notes will be a link to Amazon so you can order it. Uh, I, the book will be available at Desert Book later in March is my understanding. Once that's available, I will add in the show notes a link to Desert Book it's for those of you that are listening to this podcast later. The book will also be available at Costco and other places. I'd like um, to thank a couple people. The first um, group I'd like to thank are the people that helped me put the book together. Number one is Cedar Fort. That is our publisher. They're located in Utah County in Utah. A terrific group of people working um, hard to bring forth Latter-day Saint content in our Latter-day Saint community. Very professional organization. It's not easy to be a publisher in this um, world. Um, They're doing a terrific job and they've been a pleasure to work with. And I'm honored to have two books published by Cedar Fort. Uh, I'd like to also thank my editors. They're um, separate from Cedar Fort. There are people I've brought into the fold, so to speak, that compliment me. I'm not a writer. Um, I didn't get very good scores on my ACT in those areas. And so I've had to bring professionals in my life. And two that have helped me and they're recognized, their names are in the book, are Trina Codley, C-A-U-D-L-E. I hope I'm pronouncing Trina's name right. Um, we don't talk about last names very much as we've been doing this. And um, another terrific editor is Marcy McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E. And both of those wonderful women are listed in the introduction to the book. I'd like to also thank my dear wife, Sheila, who's supportive of what I do um, and is supportive of just the general area that I serve. And I'm grateful for her support throughout my entire life and all the things that I do. And she does so much work in her circle of influence to build Zion, bring people closer to Christ. And I'm grateful for the role and having Sheila in my life, my best friend and my eternal companion, grateful for my family. We have six children, four married and grateful for all of them as long as, as well as our grandchildren. Um, How can you help? Some people say, can I donate to the podcast or can I help in any way? And we don't accept donations. This is a labor of love, self-funded labor of love. But what you can do to help is rate the podcast. But more importantly, at this point, given it's a new book, is go to Amazon and go to Desert Book and and do two things there. Give a star rating and and leave a written review. That really helps um, people to connect with the content. So please do that if you've, and many of you have done that with the first book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. But if you haven't done that and you feel so inclined, you can still leave a review at Amazon and Desert Book. Now I'd like to give a little bit of an introduction to the book. I do this in the book. The book has an introduction section. And then I'd like to go over, just in an overview form, each of the 10 chapters so you get more of a feel for the content of this book. 
The dedication on the book reads, The book is dedicated to all those who have shared with me your stories with honesty and vulnerability. You are some of my heroes. Your perspective and insights help us better understand how we can improve Latter-day Saint culture to create Zion, a Zion where we all feel loved, needed, and that we belong. So this book um, is supportive of the church, our doctrine, um, and, but I'll read here in the introduction. However, I've come to understand that it is often the culture that causes some of our dear friends to step away from the church. So I'm a believing, committed Latter-day Saint. I have a testimony of a restiller doctrine revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith. That doctrine is unique to our Christian faith and is the anchor of my testimony and and why I want more to connect with um, our church and stay in our church, um, not just for the numbers um, and to feel good that our numbers are growing, but because of the healing doctrine that's part of the core of the restoration that brings hope, perspective. I think the mortality experience is incredibly wounding, and we need um, both the community and also this doctrine. Um, in the introduction, I introduce a quote by Sister Carol F. McConkie, who was in the Young Women's General Presidency, and she said, quote, um, The gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we need to fix that, end quote. Likewise, President Ballard taught in a recent talk, um, quote, Disregarding old notions and ideas that sometimes unintentionally contribute to their feelings of loneliness and they do not belong or cannot serve, end quote. And that was in reference to single Latter-day Saints. But this book is a practical application of Sister McConkie's statement and Elder and President Ballard's challenge to improve church culture. And I wish I had read a book like this decades ago. It would give me more tools to be thoughtful, helpful, and inclusive. When we know better, we do better. Even though I am the author of this book, I am not at the finish line as a work in process for me to improve so I can see and better support others. Then I quote Elder Uchtdorf, how often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew. Um, throughout this book, some of the insight experiences may cause us to feel uncomfortable perhaps with an initial reaction to defend the church or dismiss others' experiences, I have learned to sit with this discomfort as it often leads to the changes I need to make to get to past my iron gate. As each of us improve, our church is one step closer to a vision of a unified Zion. Further, as we validate others' experiences that can help them feel heard, provide a measure of healing, and increase the chance they can put the experience behind them and move forward. So that's the introduction. I didn't read it all, but just gives you a feel for the introduction of the book and the overview. Now, there's 10 chapters in the book. Each chapter is kind of a standalone chapter. You may choose to read one chapter and share it with somebody, and another chapter may not resonate with you. It's not a book where each chapter builds on the previous chapter. I'll read the chapter headings now. Chapter one, improving our culture to be non-judgmental and more loving. Chapter number two, measuring progress by coming to Christ and not church callings. Chapter three, women in the church. Chapter four, ending pornography use. Chapter five, hope-filled repentance. 
Chapter 6, Creating Better Understanding of Mental Illness and Suicide. Chapter number 7, Overcoming Scrupulosity, sometimes called Religious OCD. Chapter number 8, Variations in Missionary Service. Chapter number 9, Manifest Love Even in Politics. Chapter 10, Ministering to Those with Questions. And I'll talk more about each chapter now. Just in summary, chapter one is a chapter about improving our culture so that people don't feel judged um, as part of just the Latter-day Saint experience. And it's based on a Facebook post I wrote in May of 2017. And the title of the Facebook post is, Is She Wearing Her Temple Garment in That Wedding Photo? And I went on to describe just using that as an example of not using um, judging people, and they may be in a little different spot than we are, and it's not part of our covenants to judge other people or try to figure out if they're keeping all of their covenants, but what they need is love and support and kind of meet them where they are. Um, that Facebook post was picked up by LDS Living. It's by far the most viral thing I've ever written. It had 5,100 comments, 22,000 likes, and 19,000 shares. And so I built this whole chapter based on that book, or sorry, that Facebook post from 2017. But it quotes some of our church leaders. Elder Uchtdorf has taught, quote, stop it. It's simply that simple. We have to stop judging others and replace judgmental thoughts with feelings, with a heart full of love of his children. And then he goes on to say, don't judge me because I son differently than you, end quote. <clears throat> And all these leader quotes are footnote in case you want to use them in anything that you're developing in your area of influence. Uh, there's wonderful things. There's a talk by Elder Holland that I'm using, All Critters Got a Place in the Choir. And he talks about the choir and there's room for everybody in the choir. One of my favorite LDS authors is Al Carraway. She's the author of many books, including More Than a Tattooed Mormon, but she shared a blog post, blog post in March of 2020, 10 years after her baptism, where she continues while she has a deep testimony of the church and is helping really thousands of people come to the church and stay in the church. She at times feels judged. And I've added some of the things that she shared there. And that's all part of the idea of when we know better, we do better. Then there's people that have bravely stepped forward and shared their stories that are part of the book. Some have used their name and some have used, um, I don't know what we call that, a fake name, a pseudonym name, a pen name. Um, so they feel safe being fully honest so that you could read their stories. All these stories are supportive of the church and the doctrine, but often talk about where the culture has wounded them. And these are the kind of stories that I think help us to make sure in sort of an innocent way we don't wound other people. Um, one of the stories is um, from Susan on page 21, if you have a paperback copy at some point, and she just talks about working in a trauma, level one trauma center all night long on Saturday night. It was brutal. And she had to be back at um, the hospital Sunday afternoon and her church meant during Sunday afternoon. So she knew there was a ward building um, along the freeway and she stopped and hoping there was a 9 a.m. Um, shift. But when she walked a 9 a.m. session, a 9 a.m. meeting schedule, and sure enough there was, but she was in her scrubs, hadn't showered, her hair was a mess. 
She just talks about the very painful experience she had, and it gave her empathy for visitors and wondering, are we really honoring that phrase on the building, visitors are welcome? So there's many people that have stepped forward and just shared their experience where um, they've had something that hasn't helped them or been a little painful or suggestions on how we can improve. I recognize in my own life, I grew up in a very homogeneous um, area of Salt Lake City. People were like me. They had the same skin color, um, the same socioeconomic stand, status. Um, it was just sameness. And as I've grown up and seen a worldwide view of the church, I just really think Zion is not about creating sameness. It's about creating unity as we unify together to lift the hands of others. Um, so there's no poor among us, which to me symbolically means everybody who's walking a harder road. So our culture needs to grow like our leaders are suggesting so everybody feels welcome. They can come as they are and all their beautiful and unique differences are looked in in a positive way. And I end this chapter with Elder Gong's talk called The Inn that he gave in April 2021. It's titled Room at the Inn, just a wonderful talk. Chapter two is called Measuring Progress by Coming to Christ and Not by Callings. And I'll read a little bit from this chapter. This is a vulnerable chapter for me to write as I share some of my most honest feelings and painful church experiences, not to be critical of our church, but to help improve our culture so more can partake of the blessings of a restored doctrine. Starting as a young man, and I'm 60 years old now, listeners, I had been hardwired as a committed Latter-day Saint to occasionally measure my progress in life and see my worth based on church callings. I do not believe this is how my Heavenly Father wants me to measure my life. I share this personal active aspect of my life to help us improve church culture so that others do not feel the pain I've had experienced by tying my worth to something outside of my control. Rather, my hope is our culture hardwires us to measure progress in life by coming into Christ, developing Christ-like attributes, and honoring temple covenants, all things within our control. And then I talk about a Facebook post I wrote called so were you an AP on your mission? That post was picked up also by LDS Living, and it just talks about sometimes we measure a missionary's success by did he become an AP or for sisters, a sister leader, and why those are um, good things. Um, measuring our progress and our mission success or creating a culture on that can be harmful and keeps us from living what I would call a higher or a holier way. I talk about my own mission experience where a mission president actually changed that and um, talked about um, changing the ladder, so to speak, and how that improved the culture of our mission and perhaps how we can use the example of my mission president more broadly in our circles of influence. Talk about a painful, couple painful church experiences. Um, talk about Elder Clayton M. Christensen when he was in Area 70. He has since passed away, and he talks a lot about this subject. And Elder Uchtdorf talks about this subject, how there's a better way and we shouldn't rank callings. And that's part of his talk, Lift Where You Stand. So um, just kind of skimming this chapter, where we're all needed as part of the body of Christ— 
Um, Elder talk, Elder Uchtdorf also gives a talk, We Must Not Inhale, wonderful principles taught in that chapter. In that talk, um, Elder Ballard talks about his advice given to general authorities to be humble and teachable and reachable, wonderful advice that's applicable to all of us. I talk about Shiblon, and that's a wonderful talk that Elder Michael T. Ringwood General Authority 70 talked about truly good and without guile, and um, somebody who served a little more quietly. And I talk about what Michael Wilcox, my institute teacher, talks about the Jonathan principle. And um, the prophet Samuel had to decide between Jonathan and David to replace Saul as the next king, and just how David was called and Jonathan wasn't called. But Jonathan's humility in that process, and there's many Jonathans among us quietly serving without perhaps the recognition and the understanding of how they serve. And um, just wonderful insights to help us improve our culture. And then I have stories of people um, in the book that talk about how they've had good and difficult experiences and how we can improve our culture. And I hope that chapter is helpful. Chapter number three is a really important chapter in the book. It's entitled Women in the Church. And I'll read here. I asked my friends Cynthia Winwood and Susan Hinckley to write this chapter about improving church culture for women. These two wonderful committed Latter-day Saints produce a podcast called At Last She Said It. I have learned so much from Cynthia and Susan. I recognize that I need to listen to the experiences of a wide range of women to better understand their concerns, learn what I need to change, and learn how I can improve things in my circle of influence. This benefits not only women, but all Latter-day Saints, as women contributions are full, more fully used to build Zion. This is a tender topic for me, listeners, because it's one of the blind spots I've had for decades in the church, um, not using and valuing and understanding voices of women. And it's an area where I repent and continue to need to repent. And um, Cynthia and Susan and many others have taught me so much. And I encourage you to read this chapter and then reflect on what you can do in your circle of influence to better value the voices of women to help us create Zion. I'm obviously grateful to the women in my life that have blessed my life, and um, I hope I continue to strengthen their lives and their voices. My dear wife, Sheila, and our two daughters and other women, daughters-in-law that are part of our life. Chapter number four is titled Ending Pornography Use. This is based on an Ensign article that I wrote titled Seven Tips for Overcoming Pornography Use. And this chapter is an expanded version of that Ensign article. And part of that expanded chapter is stories of people that have shared about their own pornography use and how they've worked through it and, and insights that they have because they've walked this road that help others. We also have therapists as part of this chapter. This is a wonderful chapter for really everybody in the church. If you're a local leader, it will give you better tools to help people in pornography use. If you are a parent, it will create a better culture in your family to help your children 
um, if they have innocent exposure or um, exposure they've sought out, be able to talk to you about it and give you better tools. And perhaps, I don't want to rank any of these, but for those of you that are working to end pornography use, you are some of my heroes. I don't think you got up one day and said, made a list of 10 things you can do to disappoint your heavenly parents. And this is on the list, so you chose it. I think this gradually came into your life. It's a sin. And this book will give you more chat, more tools to help overcome it. Shame is such a big part of this, and I'll talk more about that. And I'm just kind of skimming the chapter and looking at wonderful people that have helped and going through these seven tips. And I don't want to go too deep. Um, I want to save that for the book. But the atonement has a big part of this. And um, uh, also shame, and I'll talk more about that in a second. But maybe that's all I'll say about this chapter. Just invite you to read it. Um, it goes through the seven tips to end pornography use. I do believe it's peaking with this generation. You're the first generation that's had to have access to pornography 24-7 in the privacy of wherever. That obviously wasn't a part of my generation, but we're wired the same way as your generation, assuming I'm talking to people right now that are younger. But, you know, I think it's peaking because I think you have the tools to be able to help the next generation and your own generation. So I have great hope. Um, but so much of Satan's tool here is shame. And shame isolates you. It isolates you from the love of your heavenly parents, from the Savior, from talking with others. And that keeps you in this whirlpool of self-loathing, acting out shame. And, and so you've got to break the same shame cycle as step number one. And, and um, you can solve this. And this chapter will be helpful for you. Chapter number five is called Hope-Filled Repentance, and it's also based off an Ensign article that I wrote called How the Savior's Healing Power Applies to Repenting from Sexual Sin, and that was in the August 2020 Ensign in the YSA Digital Only. But I'll read here at the beginning of the chapter, one of my greatest honors during my service as a YSA bishop was to facilitate the repentance process as board members changed their lives and drew nearer to our Savior. Over the course of my assignment, my approach to this process significantly changed, while the core doctrine of repentance through the atonement of Jesus Christ stayed the same. And then I go into that a little bit. When I started my assignment, I assumed the Bishop's Handbook had a repentance grid where I could look up a sin and there would be a two-part repentance, restrictions and duration of those restrictions. For example, three months of no temple attendance. This grid might include other factors such as being temple endowed. This idea parallels our criminal justice system in which judges have sentencing guidelines within the laws of their jurisdiction, such as six months in jail for a specific outcome. I thought a similar sentence guideline exists in the handbook. I quickly learned our inspired church leaders provided no such grid. Further, the Spirit taught me to understand principle-based repentance, unlike rules-based criminal justice system, which is not based on the atonement of Jesus Christ. That was a paradigm shift for me as I began to understand the, the measure of true repentance is two things, godly sorrow and a mighty change of heart, not the conclusion of time-based restrictions, which are a means, not the end, 
of complete repentance. And then I talk about developing customized repentance plans based on principles and based on the unique um, situation of each person versus the standardized. And I talk about list of restrictions and things to do. One of the best things to do is to read just a chapter. Some people aren't big readers, and I worry give them a long list of things to read isn't the way they resonate with the Spirit. Others do, but I would always give somebody chapter 17, The Blessings of Repentance from the from the, the Infinite Atonement by Ted Callister. Talk a little bit about church discipline and how I handled that. In general, I felt, unless it was required by the handbook, which actually never happened during my service, church discipline worked best if, if the person and I both felt it would help them and it would um, not bring them further down, but would be something that springboarded them forward. But often, and I just talk about church discipline and how we handled that. I talk about um, some situations where I felt most of the repentance had actually been done before they confessed. And if I just started the repentance process with their confession, I was actually adding to their burden that they had done a lot of work before they walked in my office. I think we usually think about confession as what starts the repentance process, but in some cases, it's what finishes the repentance process, the last thing that needed to be done. And I needed to learn to be sensitive to the Spirit to recognize the uniqueness of each situation. I talk about the iceberg concept, which is this idea of what we see above the iceberg of what's going on in our lives. Um, Sin-related is what we see, but often at the bottom of the iceberg are are other things leading to that. And um, if I just treat all sin the same, the top of the iceberg stuff, I may not be doing what Heavenly Father would want me to do to help some of His children and just talk about the need to get to the bottom of the iceberg to understand the totality of the situation to be able to help somebody. Um, And we talk about that in the context of sexual sin. Also, and I might mention in that prior chapter about pornography, we do talk a little bit about masturbation. That usually accompanies pornography and The reason I talk about that is we're not generally talking about that. So I felt a lot of the YSAs, since we're not talking about it, didn't know the seriousness of that sin and didn't know how to feel if that was part of their life and what they should do. And that shame or that unknown often became worse than the sin itself and separated them from the love of their heavenly parents or hope of the atonement. So I tried to just be factually as clear as I could, consistent with church teachings. I believe and teach it's a sin, but I think it needs to be in the context and um, talk, perhaps talk, not talking about it worse as times and just being clear, especially with parents teaching family members. But now back to this chapter on hope-filled repentances. Um, shame is this idea um, that instead of looking forward with hope, it looks backward into a whirlpool of lies and self-loathing about your character and worth. And that's one of Satan's greatest tools. Yes, one of Satan's tools is to cause us to sin, but I think pragmatically that's part of mortality. I invite everybody not to sin, but I think the real test of your character is what you do next. And you're able to look forward, make it a learning experience. Um, Shame wants you to look backwards, and that's Satan's goal. Guilt wants you to look forward, and that's Christ's goal, recognizing the atonement in your future. 
The prodigal son, and I've talked about on the podcast, is my favorite parable from the New Testament. And I think the Savior wants us to understand the power of the atonement. So he sets up a worst-case scenario with the prodigal. Um, He lived a life of riotous living, and he gave away his father's inheritance. And so he had that beautiful moment where he came unto himself that's recorded in Luke. And I think those are beautiful moments. They're guilt, but they're forward-looking. And he said, I'm going to go back. But you remember, he decided and self-concluded his own future. He says, I'll just go back as a servant. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And then the Savior sets up just incredible, beautiful imagery of that father, which I think represents our heavenly parents or the Savior people um, in our lives. Um, He's working the field when he sees his son. And I think we all remember that the father runs after his son. And I think it stuns the son. And his son says something like this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. This is what one of my institute teachers, Michael Wilcox, taught me. I think the son is saying, why are you treating me this way? And then to forever answer that question, when we're in the faraway land, and we all are at times symbolically in our lives, some a little further than others, but we all have moments where we regret what we've done. Um, but the Father forever answers that question. We come back, do we come back as servants or do we come back as sons or daughters? And he puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his shoulder to hear, to know we come back. We don't add to the Savior's burden when we sin. He's already paid the price. In fact, he's happy when we take advantage of the gift that he's already paid the price for. So that's why I t- titled this chapter, Hope-Filled Repentance. Um I love what one of the writers in this chapter, Hayden Paul, who talks about resolving pornography from the prior chapter, he writes this, quote, I don't see repentance as an action with the start and end. It should be an ever-present attitude, a constant desire to improve and reconcile oneself with God. It It is a hunger to be closer to Him and more like Him. And I love that. And he talks about it's a spiral staircase where... At times we do mess up, but we look at what we can do and improve. And um, we'll talk, just talk some more about that as well, of what our leaders have shared. So those two chapters, chapter four and five, do kind of go together. Ending pornography use and hope-filled repentance. Those are terrific chapters um, that I encourage everybody to read. If you don't read anything in the book, the principles in that chapter, I think, will help you and help you help others. Chapter six is titled Creating Better Understanding of Mental Illness and Suicide. And um, I'll read from the introduction of this chapter. At times, faithful Latter-day Saints can experience mental illness and even feelings of suicide. Our church culture should provide love and support, not create a feeling that mental illness is a sign of weakness or spiritual deficit. In fact, everyone should feel that church is a safe place as they work through these difficulties Hopefully, we'll not look down on them, limit their chances to contribute, or dismiss discussions about mental health as inappropriate. Judgment can create shame and isolation, discouraging members with mental health issues from attending church and receiving the blessings of the sacrament, serving others. And so I talk about that, talk about suicide, talk about Elder Holland's talk like a broken vessel. And when he opened up about his own periods of depression, and my love for Elder Holland only increased. It didn't take anything away from his apostolic ministry. 
In fact, I found myself praying for him and rooting for his success. If I knew more about um, his journey, vulnerability brings, brings authentic connection. I think we need to learn to be more vulnerable, and being vulnerable about mental health is scary. So I'm grateful for what Elder Holland does has done. I open about my own um, mental health challenges in this chapter, and I've seen a therapist tw- twice in my life. Once while serving in my YSA assignment, and I talk about the shame I felt um, as I walked into my therapist's office, grateful it was on the other side of town because I was worried, what would the YSAs think if they thought saw their own bishop going to therapy? And how I've concluded now that that was not a spiritual weakness, and perhaps I should have even talked about that in appropriate situations with the YSAs. It may have improved our culture in our ward around mental health. So I be a little bit honest there. And there's wonderful people that have contributed. We reference podcasts throughout all the entire book. There are people that have gone deeper than we have in the book, um, including Dr. Christy Kane. Wonderful insights. We also talk about suicide. Sister Alberto of the Relief Society General Presidency was frank about this and her father um, dying by suicide in her 2019 conference talk. And she talks about Talking about suicide in appropriate ways doesn't increase the likelihood that someone will become suicidal or die by suicide. Talk about the latest our church is teaching on suicide. It's really very different than when I was growing up. That comes via Elder Renland videos that the church produced. And I want people to understand um, exactly what the church is sharing and um, just how we can do better in this space. I also talk about the Joiner model of suicidality, which is a three-pronged model that really helped me understand why someone might feel suicidal. And I'll just read the three things. Perceived burdensome, this incorrect idea that my death will be more to more will mean more to my my death will be worth more than my life to family, friends, and society. That's wrong. People shouldn't feel that way, but some people feel that way. And then the second one is low belonging or social alienation. And the third one is an acquired ability to enact lethal self-injury. So I think understanding um, helps us understand how to help people. One of the things I did in this book is um, I asked on Twitter, if you've been suicidal, what would you say to your younger self or to others that are considering suicide? And I And there's a wonderful list here on page 165 of the paperback book that are wonderful things that people that have been walking this road help with others. And so I hope that book is helpful to talk about this tender topic in a more helpful way. Chapter number seven could be part of chapter number six, um, but I decided to break it out because it directly affects our family. The title of this chapter is called Overcoming Scrupulosity. Or religious OCD. And the best way I can introduce scrupulosity for those of you that have a desire, and we understand people that compulsively wash their hands, feeling they're dirty, the compulsion is washing their hands and there's temporary relief. But we learn from exposure response therapy the path to healing is learning to live with the dissidents that our hands might not be completely clean. Now, scrupulosity is like that it's this incorrect assumption that because of minor sins or thoughts, that we fundamentally are unclean or unworthy or have the inability to take as a missionary our message to the world because we're not perfect. And we talk about 
perfect obedience and a sin resist generation. And some, for some personalities that it, that activates their scrupulosity in an unhealthy way. And so what they do, just like someone washing their hands, they confess and that brings temporary relief, but they become chronic confessors and it actually adds to the cycle. And so as a YSA bishop, I obviously wish I knew about this because I think I had some YSAs that had scrupulosity and the path to healing isn't confession. Um, the path to healing is getting to a therapist that has experience helping someone through scrupulosity. But this um, became part of our family's reality as our youngest son served his mission. I kind of talk in the book, and I won't go into detail, that he's a pretty stand-up guy, courageous, um, walked onto his football team as a senior and won all-region honors, was called to serve in Samoa. It was a country he had been to earlier doing humanitarian work. So he had the benefit of three older brothers. So we, as we dropped him off at the MTC, kind of felt this guy was prepared for his mission. And then things started to go downhill. He just kept reporting he couldn't feel the spirit. Um, finally made it to Samoa. Things were better for a short period of time. But then um, he, be, uh, he what happened to him was something we've never seen happen in any of our children. He be got in a really dark place and would continue to confess to his mission president, to his bishop and stake president back home. We He was honest with us, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the technology that he was able to communicate with us in a, in a different way that would have been possible in an earlier generation in the church. Um, importantly, we knew he was emotionally safe enough to continue his mission, but we also knew it was a possibility he came home. And one day at lunch, I was with a, a local therapist, one of my heroes, Kent Griffiths, describing, we just knew those missing pieces of the puzzle um, with what was going on here. There were something was occurring that we did not understand. And our combined life experiences between local church leaders and parents and prayers, well, just weren't being able to connect the dots. And Kent Griffiths, as I described our son's situation, said, that's scrupulosity. And um, then I found an Ensign article, actually my dear wife Sheila found an Ensign article that had just been written by Deborah McClendon that talked about this. We had Deborah McClendon on the podcast and um, this was just um, a, a gift for us to understand scrupulosity and it gave us a diagnosis and we realized this is not a spiritual weakness, that our son is worthy. In fact, it actually attacks the thing that is most important to people that have scrupulosity that they're worthy to they're worthy and square with God because they care so much about being worthy. We recorded a podcast with Tim and Aubrey Chavez um, about their great work at Faith Matters Foundation. They're doing great work on their podcast. And I felt impressed um, right before that podcast to open up to Tim a little bit about our son's situation. And Tim experienced scrupulosity on his mission, but he didn't know it. And he and he writes in the podcast, and I've transcribed that in the book, and it's pretty heartbreaking to read how Tim managed this alone, not knowing what it was and how much better his experience would have been if he understood this and priesthood leaders understood this. And um, my respect and admiration for Tim is is kind of off the charts. He... Um, uh, but I'll read here. This terrible thing about excrupulosity attacks whatever is most 
matters most to you at the time on a mission. What matters most to me was my worthiness. So it attacked that. At that moment, what mattered most to me, and then he writes in the first, in a more recent time, what mattered most to me was my fulfilling my dream of going to grad school. So it attacked that. And so I just encourage parents to learn about scrupulosity. This is kind of, I don't want to be too dramatic, but sort of like a ticking time bomb that it didn't manifest itself until our son got on his mission. If we talk about this in a family night or talked about it in a church lesson, I think this would be an appropriate thing to be part of mission prep. And so that all everybody understands this might be part of you, might be in a companion, might be in a fellow missionary. And to recognize this, it might be in your investigators. It's just something we need to understand. And I'm grateful for Dr. McClendon for her good work. We reference her podcast or Ensign article. And uh, many people that have talked about this that are part of this chapter. So please check out this chapter. Chapter 8 is called Variations in Missionary Service. And this talks about early release missionaries. And Elder Holland talks about this. And we quote him and what he would say and what he has said to early release missionaries. But it talks about improving our culture. That can be one of the most difficult aspects of our cultures where someone comes home early from their mission. And I've had a lot of people on the podcast talk about their experience in an effort to educate all of us of what we can say. Listed here are things not to say to return missionary who did not complete a full term of service and possible responses. And then what to say to return missionary who did not complete a full term of service. And there's just wonderful insights. I think I asked Twitter one day when I was writing this chapter and they gave wonderful responses. And I just you know, think we should be prepared in an LDS congregation and a family on how to handle if someone comes home early and what to say or what not to say. And um, I think we should also not spend mental energy on the backstory of why they came home. Sometimes we're curious about that, but I think it can keep us from focusing on just ministering to them. And I wouldn't want us to rank any reason. I probably, we understand more of a medical situation in the mission field, like a knee surgery where someone needs to come home and they actually walk into church in a cast and we go, oh, you're back, we get it. Um, But there's other reasons people come home, um, including an infield transgression that results in someone being sent home. My point there is let's don't rank those. Um, Let's just um, love people and help them feel that we're glad to see them. Um, it can be one of the most difficult things, and some people have separated themselves from the church because of the experience of coming home early. Let's recognize the courage it took to go in the first place. And we talk about Drew Young, who's written a book and has been on the podcast, came home early from his mission, doing great work, um, and then referenced many stories of people that came home early and their experience. Some are very good experiences. Some are more difficult, but I'm grateful for their courage to share their stories because when we know better, we do better. So there's quite a few. Then I talk about, remember in the chapter on variations in missionary service, then I talk about service missions. And the idea of this is to normalize service missions to be equal with what I would call proselyting missions and that not look culturally as that's like a second choice or that's what people do if the first one doesn't work out. And Luke Davenport, a member of our home ward here in Salt Lake City, a dear family friend has been on the podcast a couple of times talking about this. 
he felt his path was to do a service mission. And he also talks about um, his obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety disorder. So he's been pretty open about his journey. Um, But he is a wounded healer. He is the go-to guy for many of the men and women his age because he understands complex things. And he can go with them and have complex conversations. So he's a remarkable man. Um, his mission, service mission is complete. And he has wonderful insights as well as um, other people that were serving at the same time with him. We brought many of their stories into the podcast or into this chapter. And um, then we have suggestions for improving our culture regarding service missionaries. Then we also have um, personal stories from those who did not serve missions. And I think sometimes we create a fork in the road where either you stay active in the church or you go on a mission. And I think we need to create a third fork in the road where people receive personal revelation that their path as a committed Latter-day Saint is to not to serve a mission. I wouldn't invite someone down that path. I would always invite someone to serve a mission. If they're wanting my counsel, I'd be glad to give them thoughts and perspective. But if they've come to the conclusion that their path is to not serve a mission, I would want to help them feel loved and help them feel support and reminded this isn't a saving ordinance and they um, just trust them. So we talk about that in the chapter, including an experience I had with Adrian in our YSA war, a young man who felt his path was not to serve a mission. You can read about that. Then we talk about people that have had difficult experience in this space um, one mother writes about her son was attended to, its, to attend the military academy at West Point. What a huge accomplishment to the family and to our society. But she talks about how in her own church, so, so, church culture that was not valued perhaps as much as serving a mission and how that was difficult to see her son doing wonderful things in the service of our country and growing and blessing the lives of others. But at times the culture didn't match um, his beautiful assignment and saw him only that he was not serving an LDS mission. And that was hard for the whole family. So I great insights from her and some tears in my eyes as I read some of these experiences and grateful that as we read these stories, we're able to do better. Chapter nine listeners is called Manifest Love, Even in Politics. And it's it's a chapter not written by me. Um, it's written by my friend David Cook, and I write about him in the introduction. I asked my friend David Cook to write chapter nine about changing our church culture in the area of politics. His professional work as a lawyer in Ron- Rochester, New York, combined with his lifelong church service, results in some unique insights. I respect his thinking. He presents what I feel is a balanced point of view that can help us listen to all kinds of voices in the political arena so that we can do better and so that we can work together instead of against each other to improve our world. I hope we can find common ground and make space for all kinds of political opinions in our church families so that we all feel welcomed. No one should be labeled as less faithful because of their political views. So just a terrific chapter from my friend David L. Cook. Um, and he just, I think this is a concern of our leaders. I think Elder Renlund's talk about the spiritual stress test through COVID has resulted in an understanding that we have work to do in this space as we have different feelings about things. And I think the goal is not for the church culture to bring everybody to one political party. 
I think that I think we understand that. I think the goal of church culture is like David Cook writes is to bring us together in love, allowing for differences, but we have this higher holier charge um, that should unite us in Zion and Zion is no poor among us. When I think of the city of Enoch and I think of that symbolic for everybody who needs their hand lifted and supported and the one and our missionaries are doing is they take the healing message of a restored gospel. So I'm grateful for my friend, David Cook writing that chapter and as you read that chapter, I just invite everybody to consider what we can do better in our circle of influences and sometimes ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? And do I need to do better in this space? I certainly have learned a lot and um, continue to need to improve in this space. This last chapter is titled Ministering to Those with Questions. And um, before I talk about this chapter at all, it's really my brother, David, who's become an um, one of, I think, the great voices in our church on this subject. He wrote a book called Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. I realize I stole his title practically for the title of this chapter. Please read his book. Um, and he has continued to, he's added a new chapter to his book that will be helpful for those in a what I would call a mixed, or he would call a mixed faith marriage, where there's different levels of belief within the marriage and principles that can keep the marriage together. So please check out his work as well as this chapter. Um, but this is a chapter that gives tools to help those that are trying to help others stay in the church, or if you are trying to stay in the church, give you tools to be able to do that. Um, I think sometimes the tools that we use to help people join the church, I'm thinking of the tools I use in missionary experiences, are different at times than the tools to keep someone in the church. And sometimes revert to those known tools, and those are still helpful and appropriate, but there's more tools. So I just encourage parents to read this chapter, read David's book. As your children are aging up, it'll just give you more tools to help them. Um, one of the important things I think we need to do is create spaces for different types of testimony. One day on Twitter, and I got about 1,200 responses, I says, if you are an active Latter-day Saint, Please indicate your testimony to the church. And I gave him four choices. 41% said no, said K-N-O-W, they know it's true. Sorry, not the word no. 33% said believe, I believe it's true. 15% said hope, I hope it's true. And 11% said not sure. And so if only the testimony type we hear in church is I know the church is true, that's only 41% of this poll. The rest of the people may conclude that people like them don't belong and they're not good enough and they're not measuring up, even though their commitment to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ may match every other testimony type. And a few days later, I asked this question if, on Twitter, if you are an active Latter-day Saint and in a faith crisis, is your hope to find a way to stay or to find a way to leave? And there were 300, 335 people that, asked, that answered that Twitter poll and 80 8% said, find a way to stay. Now, that surprised me because I thought everybody that was in a faith crisis or asking honest questions just wanted to leave the church. They were lazy. And I realized sometimes the things we say about people in this space aren't helping them stay. And um, we just need to do better. I'm a segment marketer by trade. So if I had a group of people that stopped eating Oreo cookies, I would want, and I do, I'd 
because of the nature of my business training is, and same with my brother, David, to even a greater extent, loves to do research um, to understand why people feel the way they feel. And so I talk about that in this chapter. I open up about my own faith journey. I've been open about a mini faith crisis I had and how I had to deconstruct a little bit and reconstruct. And that reconstruction is really around the core unique doctrine that came through the restoration and the way it brings hope and healing to me in the world, the power of covenants, modern day prophet and apostles, um, the power of the priesthood. So it's a pretty traditional testimony, but it's very much based on um, our restored doctrine that's unique. So I'm just kind of skimming pages in this to see if anything I want to share. Um, I do want to read this section. It's topical right now. Um, and I'll just read this if you'll hang with me. Holding space for feelings about race and, and the priesthood is taught by my friend Paul Reeve, an active Latter-day Saint professor of Mormon studies at the University of Utah and an expert on race and Latter-day Saint history. So before I read this, one of the ideas is just to create space for people to have different feelings about some aspects of our church. And... Um, People are going to have different feelings about polygamy, about race and the priesthood, about LGBTQ, and still be supportive of church leaders and church doctrine. And let's don't shame people that have different feelings about this or call them less faithful Latter-day Saints. Let's create Zion by creating space for people as they make their way forward to have different feelings about some parts of our church. And, and so my friend Paul Reeve um, talks about his feelings on this, and he was on the podcast um, I believe episode 278, and we transcribed this podcast and put part of it in the book so you could read it. In the podcast, Paul shared that we should create space in our congregations for those who believe that withholding the priesthood and temple restrictions from blacks was not God's will. Quote, you can be a faithful Latter-day Saint and not believe the racial restrictions were of God or of divine origin. In fact, as an historian, that's where the evidence is. When you respond by calling my faith into question, it's really hurtful. I've experienced it and it doesn't feel good. So you're asking me to believe that a God was a racist, then a prophet, a human, a fallible human was a racist. That's what it boils bound, bound to. The information I have is that about God is that he and she are not respecters of persons and that all, they treat all of their children the same, all alike unto God. To me, that makes sense because I'm a parent. I love all my kids. I think Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother love all their children as well. You have to tie yourself into some pretty tough knots to try then suggest that somehow the priesthood and temple ban was divine origin. Please don't um, suggest that someone's faith is somehow suspect if they don't believe that the racial restrictions were of divine origin. I won't read all of this. Um, my understanding is that we're supposed to let Jesus be the judge. We're not supposed to judge each other. Because you may not like the message doesn't mean the messenger's faith is somewhat suspect. We're all walking a stumbling path to God. I stumble all the times. As such, I try to be more accepting of my fellow Latter-day Saints who are stumbling, stumbling, end quote. And then I write, how we feel about this issue is not a temple recommend question, nor should it be a litmus test of our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope Latter-day Saints who share Paul's feelings on this issue 
as well as those who see this differently, are equally welcomed and needed in latter in our congregations further before reaffirming up our own conclusions on this topic, we should listen to Black Latter-day Saints, and a lot of them, to understand their feelings since they are the group most impacted by past restrictions. So that's part of the book. That part of the book was written about 18 months ago, but is um, relevant given the discussions going in today. Um, Wonderful content in this chapter from Brother Jervid Halverson, having a student... He's a teacher at the University of Utah Institute. He had a student who said, I'm going to give class one more day. And then talked about how to manage fallible prophets and their infallibility. And we don't really, we talk about our prophets are fallible. We don't really talk about their infallibility. And and Brother Halverson just having great insights on how to talk about that. And those are the topics that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints, especially our young generation, want to talk about at church. There's people that are left our church that will talk about these more sticky subjects, but we need to learn to talk about these within the walls of our church. Brother Halverson, um, Paul Reeve, and many others are doing that. President Ballard gives wonderful quotes here that we reference in this chapter. They're also in my brother's book. Um, Quote, gone are the days when a student asks an honest question and the teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere question and and the teacher bore his or her testimony's response intended to avoid the issue. So if that's the counsel President Ballard's giving to um, church education, including to know the essays like the back of our hands, that to me is what we should be doing as local leaders and parents. Why? Because it gives us more tools to help those with honest questions. And that may be family members as well as people we have responsibility for. So I'm just kind of skimming this chapter, see if there's anything in there. Um, This is kind of, I will read this. In the last year of being a YSA bishop, I began to post things about our LGBTQ friends on my social media, often linking with church resources. And what happened stunned me. Um, Many of the YSAs, including those who didn't at church, concluded that if I was open about sensitive, toxic, topics and says positive things about LGBTQ people, then they could perhaps talk to me about about what was in their heart without fear or judgment. No additional LGBT people came out to me, but many board members felt safe for the first time sharing issues close to their hearts. So as a parent or leader, we can create a culture in where our children and ward members feel faith telling us things. Um if we consistently say kind things about everybody. Now there's people that are toxic in our life or people that are initiating war. That would be an exception. But I think Christ modeled that in his ministry when he said kind things about everybody. That didn't change the doctrine. They didn't change commandment keeping. We can do both. And so this is a chapter just to improve. And um, please connect with my brother's work, Bridges, ministering to those who question. And he gives a, one of the things I'll read here, he gives six tips for parents of adult children who do not believe in the church. And this article, this was published by LDS Living. Don't preach or lecture. Listen to understand and validate. Use words that affirm. Accept and love them fully. Remember agency and love of our heavenly parents. Take care of yourself. Then he goes on to also write about, there's no empty seats at our table. 
um, for family vacations. And don't worry about empty seats at the table in the next life. Don't worry now a future outcome if you have people in your life not participating in the church. Focus on things you can control and leave everything else to our heavenly parents. They want to get every one of their kids back that continues to want to try to get back. And so let's really own our doctrine, our plan of salvation, and be at peace. That doesn't give permission for people to live our ch- leave our church or not keep commandments. It just helps us find peace if there's pe- people that have exercised their agency to follow a different path. So um, that's the end of this podcast. Um, I'd like to thank my dear wife, Sheila, who's supportive of this book. Um, we've had a lot of these conversations during the course of our marriage that have made it into this book. She is a terrific person doing much to build the kingdom, improve our culture as a wife and mother in the area, many areas she serves. Grateful for my family, supportive of their dad on his work in the podcasts and the book. And um, just invite you to please, in conclusion, you know, buy the book. As I mentioned, the release date is March 8th. There's a link in the podcast to the Amazon link to buy it. It's there on Kindle. It's there on paperback. We'll add the link when it's available at Desert Book to the podcast description. And please review the book at Amazon and Desert Book. If you haven't reviewed my first book, I'd encourage you to do that. And then um, just share the book with people, the individual chapters that you think can help us improve our culture. And it's my testimony. Um, if that's okay to do in a podcast, I have a deep testimony of a restored church and a deep testimony we need to do better. Um, and that within our doctrine, our current teachings, there's room for improvement. And it's okay to look inward and say that we're not at the finish line. We can be the restored church and also look inward and say we need to do better. And I think we all recognize that. We're making progress. And I hope this book joins many other offers and many of you that are doing the best you can. I also invite you to just focus on the area you have infl- can control. Sometimes we want to change things more broadly and Um, That can lead to anxiety and stress. And so each of us just has a circle of influence. And your circle of influence may be your assignment, a few people in your life, your ministering assignment. So don't feel like you've got to change the world because that may not be possible. It may be. You may be able to do that. But I think the best thing is just think about what's in your circle of you can actually control. And maybe there's another circle that goes out, a circle you can influence, but there's certainly the end circle you certainly have no control over. So focus your efforts on where you can control or have an influence and just be at peace that you're doing the best you can. Not everybody can do a podcast to write a book. Don't feel that's your path, but feel you can do what you need to do to create Zion. Everybody is needed. It's just a team effort. And thank you for joining us on another episode. And thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.